1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's read together starting at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need it this morning. <clears throat> we need to be reminded of who you are, of who we are in Christ, of your promises for us, of your plan for this world, of the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back and make all things right, make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth where your people will dwell with you forever and ever and ever. Lord, we need to be reminded of what is true because this world, our flesh, the devil have been lying to us all week and how prone we are to listen to their voice. So this morning, may we listen to your voice. May we hear your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would show us your son and that it would lead us to worship. Father, I thank you for faithful churches. And Lord, I don't know the name of the church down in Meridian that lost their pastor, Larry Laird, the other day. But Lord, I pray that you would meet with them so incredibly, so powerfully this morning that they would see your goodness in ways that they have never seen before, that even if you have called their earthly shepherd home, their heavenly shepherd still reigns and still rules, still protects and still provides. Lord, we pray for the Laird family, for, for Brenda and Mike, as well. In their loss, we pray your comfort on them. And Lord, I know there are many here hurting who need your comfort as well. Show this morning that you are God, you are good, you are king, and you are for your children. If there are any here who don't know Jesus yet, may today be the day of their salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Paul finishes this letter to Timothy by instructing him how to deal with those with wealth, those with riches, those with treasure in his congregation. It's an important matter, yet it's a matter that probably most of us think has nothing to do with us. Now, strangely, this is true of all people. I've often wondered, and you may be this way, where have you ever heard your voice recorded? And you say, that ain't what I sound like. <laughs> like, I, I hear mine, I'm like, that's Bob the tomato. That's what I hear. I don't know why. And now you're, now I've ruined it for you. Now you hear it. 
That was probably a bad idea. I've often wondered, like, does Celine Dion hear her singing and say, ugh? The same is true for rich people. For the majority of rich people, they're not rich. The next guy is rich. The next guy is wealthy. I did some research for this. You know how much Jeff Bezos, the, the, I guess the owner of Amazon, makes per hour? $8,951,000. That means from now to now, he just made $2,500. It's not bad. But if they're hiring, you don't get that. But I wonder if even Bezos says, well, I mean, yeah, I'm probably rich. But most rich people don't think they are. But the person beside them, that's the rich person. Well, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. If I just had what he had, if I just had what she had, you may even be in that boat today where you hear this text and you say, okay, we're going to take a time, a moment right now to just talk to the rich and I am. That's exactly what I'm going to do. But we need to reset our focus a little bit on who that actually is. A few weeks ago, probably a few months ago now, I was driving down the road. I was talking to one of our members. And the member asked me this question. He goes, how's your day going? And I opened my mouth to say, it has been a terrible day. And then it was like the Lord just kind of thumped me. I don't know if he does that. I don't think he does. But I thought about it. I'm driving my car to the grocery store to buy food. And I have the money to do it. And it was such a moment of clarity to just say, where I opened my mouth to say it was a terrible day. And I said, you know what? It's a pretty good day. The Lord has been good. You know, if we were to think about it, how many in history, even in the world right now, have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from? For the vast majority of us, that thought never crosses our mind. Most of us have cars. We have bank accounts, even if by the next pay period it's pushing red hard. Most of us have homes, even if we rent them. Each night, most of us sleep in a bed. Most of us have cell phones that may just go off at some point in this sermon. We're living in one of the richest, safest, most comfortable nations in the history of the world, and we are doing just fine. As I said, 1 Timothy closes with a final word to the rich. Don't think he's talking to the other guy. He's talking to you. And he's talking to me. And he says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So guys, I'm charging you. Don't be haughty. Yesterday I said, that's a valid question in front of my daughters. And they looked at each other and said, do you know what valid means? And then they asked me, what is haughty? What's he saying? Don't be prideful in what you have. Don't be arrogant. 
Well, why would a rich person be arrogant? Why would a rich person struggle with pride? Because for the most part, there are two types of rich people in this world. You've got your trust fund folks who grew up rich. Their parents gave them everything that they needed and treated them like they were very important, like they were better than others, like they were special. And they grew up to believe it, that they were somebody because they had means. Well, what's the other kind of rich? You've got the rich people that actually worked for it. They made something of themselves. They did it. So how easy is it for them, for, for them to look at themselves and say, you know, I've done this. I made this happen. And so their arrogance comes in that they've done what others haven't done, that they've made something of themselves and that those in need are in need because they just weren't as good as them. They didn't work as hard as them. They're not as bright as them. So there can be a temptation in even the self-made wealthy to look down on others and think that they are simply better than those who have nothing or have little or arrogance or pride or haughtiness can come through the fact that anything you need, you can buy. Now, I don't mean by that anything you want because that is a very small subset of society, but anything you need, you can buy. Isn't there something about feeling it's a need that changes us? That when we have needs that we know we can't fill, needs that we know we can't buy our way out of, that no money will fix, and if it was money that would fix it, we didn't have it anyways. That when we are truly needy, where do we go? We go to the Lord. It humbles us. And we go to him to ask him to do things that we can't do for ourselves, to provide for us needs that we can't find anywhere else. We can come so easily to the place where we, we put our hope and our comfort in our wealth, in what we have, in our possessions. And that's why Jesus says it's difficult for the wealthy to be saved. Why? because they rarely see their need. So Paul tells Timothy, command the rich, don't be prideful, don't be haughty. And then he tells them, don't put their hope in wealth because it's so uncertain. Rather, put your hope in God. Like, there are many places in the Bible where two things are held at odds, right? It's not saying right here that riches are bad or that wealth is bad, that we should not have that. That's not the point. What's bad is when we set before us wealth, possessions, riches, and God, and we choose wealth, and we put our hope in our wealth. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? I want eternal life. I want this true life. I want the kingdom of heaven. And yet he's not willing to part with that which he loved most. He's not willing to set aside the idol of his possessions and his wealth in order to gain eternal life. And so he walks away sad. Look, that was where his hope was. 
That was where his trust was in, is what he had. And so Paul's telling Timothy, and Jesus is telling us, and we see this regularly, look, the rich can be so prone to look at their jobs as that which provides their comfort, to look at their hard work as that which gives them their identity, to look at their bank accounts and think that it's those that give them stability. But let's be honest, that's not just the rich, is it? We struggle with that. No matter how unrich you may feel, we can be tempted to think the same thing, that where is our hope? Where is our purpose? Where is our freedom? Where is our joy? We may say things like, I would obey God in giving offerings, but I just don't make enough money to do that. If I made $2,500 per second, I'd give but I need what I have. If only I had 10,000 more dollars every year, my life would be so much better. Look, when we do that, we're looking at money as our deliverer, wealth as our hope, riches as our provider. And so verse 17 says so clearly to us, put your hope in God. This God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. Friends, it's not your money that delivers you. It's not your riches that provide for you. It's not your wealth that should give you hope. It's all fleeting. Rather, it's God. That God is your provider. He is your hope. He is the one who meets your needs. He gives everything for your enjoyment. James said it this way, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from whom? From the Father. So is there enjoyment in your life? It's a gift from God. Is there rest and comfort and hope and peace in your life? It's a gift from God that he did that. Is there anything perfect in your life? Well, that's definitely from him. But if we're at the place where our hope and our joy and our pleasure is found in our wealth, then what's going to happen to it? We will become so scared that we're going to lose that, that we will take it and we'll wrap our arms around it and we'll cling to it. We'll understand that riches are fleeting that wealth is uncertain, and so we'll take what we have and we'll, we'll put a lock on it and we'll say, this is ours because this is our hope. This is staying with me because this is my comfort. This is the only thing I have. And so everything we do, we'll be getting it and keeping it and holding on to it. And what happens is instead of us holding on to our possessions, our possessions start holding on to us. That instead of being freed by our wealth, we become bound by it. And so what is the picture that the Bible regularly gives? That when we come to understand what the Bible says, that any good thing, any true pleasure, any pure enjoyment comes not from fleeting wealth, but from a faithful father, then we find that that, that uncertainty we had, that anxiety that we had, it kind of melts away because we're seeing, look, it's not the riches that provide for me. It's the father who provides for me. And when we get there, then our hope can rest secure. Because instead of building our lives upon that which is uncertain, we've built our lives upon that which is certain. 
Instead of that being found as a foundation that is fleeting, we find one that is faithful and eternally so. So it doesn't bind us. It frees us. And it frees us up to do what verse 18 says, to do good, to be rich, not in wealth, but in good works and good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. You see the difference that Paul is pointing out here? Your kindness and your goodness and whether or not you are generous and willing to share isn't namely about your view of money. It's about your view of God. Is God your provider? Is God your treasure? Is God your hope? Because if he is, then you're going to see your wealth rightly, not as something to get and to cling to, but as something given by him for your enjoyment, but also so that you will learn to be like him, so that you will be generous, so that you will be kind, so that you will be giving. We talked about this a a few weeks ago. Paul, Paul says it better than I did, obviously. You want to be rich. You want to be rich. Lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures for yourselves. Do it. Just do it the right way. Pursue it. Just pursue the right kind. Don't lay up for yourself and store up for yourself uncertain riches, the kind of riches that that moth and rust will destroy and that thieves can break in and steal. No, lay up the kind of treasure for yourself that will last forever. Where moth can't touch, where rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. This is what verse 19 is saying. Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world to use their wealth to do good, to be rich in good deeds. And in this way, you and I will store up for ourselves true treasures, a firm foundation in the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see what Paul's doing? He's trying to take your view and just kind of reset it, refocus us on that which truly matters. Look, most rich people invest their money. They have a goal, they look ahead at what is to come and they plan for that day that when retirement comes, they want to be ready. As believers in Christ, we are called to do the same thing, that this life here is meant to be lived preparing for the eternal life that is in front of us, for the day that we stand before Christ and true life begins. You may not be familiar with the name Ronald Wayne. You ever heard of him? Currently, he's 89 years old. He lives in Cleveland, Ohio. And on April 1st, 1976, Ronnie and his friend named Steve decided they were going to start a company. Well, it took Ronald two weeks to decide he didn't have time for this company. So he sold his 10% of the stock of that company for $800, and he decided to seek other businesses. Well, that business that he sold his stock in ended up being worth more than $800 billion dollars. The company's name is Apple. They make computers and phones, and they're listening to us right now. (laughs) If he would have kept that stock, 
Today, it would be worth $60 billion. Poor investment? I bet if he had it to do again, he'd probably change his mind. But it's nothing compared to the kind of loss that we would take if we hear the word of God about how life is supposed to be and this eternal life that is to come and this investment that is coming, this kingdom that is coming, this treasure that is coming, and we listen to it and we say, "Mm, I think I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. I think I'm gonna keep living the way I'm living. I imagine that if Ronald Wayne had the chance to do it again, he would change his mind. The Bible tells you this is what's coming. So are you using your money right now in a way that you won't regret when you stand before Christ? Christian, are you generous? Are you kind? Do you see your wealth as a blessing with which Christ has blessed you? And do you obey him by giving to others? By seeking to provide needs? Do you obey him by giving to the ministry of the local church? If not, why not? Look, it's not just about money, though, is it? I mean, all the visitors here is like, oh, Baptist church, talking about money. It's not just about money, though, is it? What about your time? What does the Bible say about that? Your days are short. It's like a vapor's mist, the Bible says. I mean, the prayer is even there. Look, Lord, teach us to number our days because we know that the, the ticker's going. Tomorrow, you will have one less day than today. Teach us to number them. So how are you using your time? Are you honoring the Lord with it? Let's say Jesus comes back tonight and you stand before him, would you look at the day that you're going to live today and just think, man, I wasted that. I did nothing with it. I would have done it differently if I would have known. Paul wants the believers at Ephesus and he wants the believers here at First Baptist Columbus to do what he says in verse 19. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Don't get sucked up into this fake life where you think you're gonna find joy and pleasure. You're not. Put your eyes on the life he calls you to. Run this race with your eyes set on him. Remember, Jesus is coming back and spend this day preparing for that day. Spend this life taking hold of true life. Paul then turns to Timothy and he speaks to him, not so much about the treasure and the riches of, of, of others and who, what they have, but about a treasure that is so important that Timothy is to guard it. And you can hear the love and care and concern that Paul has for him in this. He says, oh, Timothy, I've never once said that to a guy. Oh, unless I was thinking, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But there is love in this. Oh, Timothy, my son, listen to me. Hear these words. Oh, Timothy, Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Now, recognize something. These are the last words of this letter. And when you live a life like Paul, you're not sure whether you're going to get another letter, whether you're going to ever have the chance to speak to him again and to say anything to him. So this is the last words of this note 
that Timothy is to cling to until and if they see each other again. He says, guard the deposit that is entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge because by professing that, some have just swerved from the faith completely. So what is this deposit that Timothy is to guard? Look, in the New Testament, there are two things that, that, that are described as being entrusted to pastors, to shepherds. So in Galatians, I'm going to throw these out. If you're a note taker, these are probably going to be too fast, and you can come ask me later. In Galatians 2.7, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, 1 Timothy 1.11, 2 Timothy 1.14, Titus 1.3, and in Jude 1.3. That which is entrusted to the elders of the church is the gospel. That they've been entrusted with the good news of salvation from our sins, of salvation from judgment through Jesus Christ, through trusting in the Son of God to forgive our sins, to cover our sins, to make us new. That he is to guard that. Pastors are to guard that deposit. That if anyone is teaching anything else, any other way to be saved, any other way by which we're made right with God, then Timothy is to guard that, that he's to protect them from that, to preach the truth in the face of lies. And as we've seen throughout this letter, Paul is serious about that. He brings that up multiple times. Watch out for false teaching. Watch out for false doctrine. Watch out for the doctrine of demons. That Timothy's to always guard that deposit of the gospel. And that's my task as a preacher too, to guard the gospel, to make sure that what we're teaching from here is the good news of Christ, to make sure that what's being taught out here and spoken about and even believed out here is the gospel, that salvation is found, how? By trusting in Christ. The forgiveness of sins is found in trusting that he died for your sins and rose again on the third day that we're to see our sin for what it is and to confess it when we know we have it. That there's a tightrope, as I said earlier in the Bible, where even in this text today, I don't want you to hear it and say, look, I will go to heaven if I'm good with giving my money. It's not true. You will go to heaven if you believe Jesus is good and you're trusting him that he alone can save you. But if you're going to heaven, then there should be a heavenward Focus in your life, even when it comes to your possessions. Look, when Laura and I tell our kids how they should live, we don't say, if you want to be our children, you need to live like this. It's not how we focus it most of the time. We say, no, you are our children, so you are to live like this. The young marrieds are going through the Ten Commandments right now. God does the same thing with the commandments. He doesn't start with, and we've talked about this, he doesn't start with, you shall have no other gods before me. He starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That that relationship is set and then the laws and the rules come into that. It's the same way in our home and it's the same way that I want you to hear it. What we're not saying and what the gospel is not is do all these things so that you will be right with God. It's no, trust in Jesus who did all these things on your behalf so that you will be right with God. Trust Christ that he is enough. 
That is what we are to guard, to make sure we're never swerving into this works-based salvation, but that we're staying in the truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that that is our hope. We're to guard that. But there's a second thing that the New Testament speaks of being entrusted, and it's made clear in 1 Peter 5, 3, where the church is called the flock that has been entrusted to the pastors. What does it mean? This isn't my church. You're not mine. You're not mine to lord over, and I'm not the king here, but that God has entrusted you to me. I used to make a joke that when, when boys showed up to my house to, to, to date my daughters, they would find me on the front porch in a cowboy hat sharpening my knife collection. Now, clearly it's a joke because I don't own a cowboy hat, nor do I have a knife collection. But there's a third reason it's a joke because no boys are going to show up to my house. <laughs> this ain't gonna happen. Hey? I've... As a good father, I've already arranged all their marriages, and there is no conversation to be had. We're done with that. I said the joke because they're my daughters. They're mine, that God has entrusted them to me to care for them and to grow them, to love them and cherish them and protect them and teach them to follow him. So far be it from me to let some little hormonal punk come on my porch. When I got done at Ole Miss, I wanted to stay really good friends with all the offensive linemen just for that day when guys started coming to my porch, but it, the plan fell apart. But in the same way, God has entrusted you to me. And one day I will stand before him and I will give an account for whether or not I was faithful to care for you and to grow you, and to love you, and to teach you, to cherish you, and to protect you, and to show you, model for you what it's like to follow him. Look, I've been entrusted with my daughters, and I can guarantee you they don't always like the way that I lead them and guard them. They don't. I don't always like the way I lead them and guard them, if we're just being honest. And yet, it's going to be the same way here. There's going to be days you do not like the way I do it, and I get it. And yet, this is the call that I have. I've been entrusted with you, and I'm going to guard you. I have to. Why? Because you are Jesus' bride. You're not mine. That one day I'm going to answer for you, and he scares me when it comes to that. What does it say? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So would I ever want to mess with his bride? No. Most of the men in this room, somebody messes with your bride, hell's coming, right? How much more Jesus? I want to be able to stand before him one day and hear the words, well done. And I want to be able to stand before him one day and know that I did everything I needed to, to to guard you and to continually point you to the hope we have in Christ and to encourage you to take hold of the life that is truly life. So those are the questions that I must ask myself because this challenge is laid before me. Do I lead the way he tells me to? Do I teach his word and not my own? 
Is his gospel consistently being taught to you, or have I fallen off the rails into irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge? Do I, do I recognize or remember that this word right here is the word of life, not only for you, but also for me? That I can't just be learning and studying in order to teach you and just forget that I need to be strong too. And I need to be humble and I need to be holding onto this so that I can feed you and care for you. Think about this letter. There was a call to all Christians to remember who you are in Christ. And then to remember how this plays out in our life and in our churches to men and to women, to fathers and to mothers and how their roles look in the church and in the home to elders, pastors, and what their pastoral leadership looks like, to, to deacons, to what they are supposed to be and how they are to serve, to the church and how it's to care for their widows, how to care for those in need, how to fight the battle of the, the fight of life, the fight of faith. Like throughout this letter, no matter, no matter where you find yourself in this life, a call to faithfulness is given to you. What will you do? What are you going to do? How are we going to be faithful through this fallen world? Grace. Grace. Amazing grace. Lots and lots of grace. And so Paul ends this letter with these words, grace with you. So you've got it, brothers and sisters, grace with you. And you've got grace with you because the God of all grace is with you, that he's with you. So as you go through this world, don't forget right now at this moment, at this very place where you're sitting, the God of all grace is with you. That in your need, whatever it is, the God of all grace is with you. That as you can't get your minds off whatever trial or whatever trouble, whatever storm is in your life right now, the God of all grace is with you. That as you feel the conviction of this letter of what you're supposed to be but you're not, those things you're supposed to give up and you're just struggling to do it, the God of all grace is with you. And that without him, we would be hopeless. We'd be helpless. And that, Christian, you are never, ever, ever without him. That throughout all eternity, you will never be without him because this God of grace will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. That's our God. 